Hello, welcome back to the History in Today podcast. I'm Sam Zellen, and I am super excited to be able to tell you guys that we are now on other platforms other than Anchor. So uh, I know some people noticed last week um, we are on Spotify now, we're on Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public, and that list is going to be expanding from now on. So I will continue to update you guys week by week on where we are. Um, I am thinking about possibly adding some sponsorships to see if I can kind of use that to grow the brand a little bit. But for now, we are ad-free, and I will update you guys if that changes. So uh, this week, we are going to be talking about kind of shifting back to what episode one was about, where episode one, we were about a week and a half out from the George Floyd murder. Uh, Now we are about three and a half weeks out, And the movement is definitely still going, but it has kind of changed in a way that it is not as aggressive as it was. But the important part is that the conversation is still very much alive and people are still protesting and people are making it very clear that change needs to happen. And change already has happened a few times. They got, you know, they they did end up convicting the killers of George Floyd, and they got the sentence moved from uh, third degree to second degree. And yeah, that's all well and good. Things have happened, but it is very clear that more needs to happen. So to talk about the theme of more needing to happen and the theme of change taking a while, I decided that this week we're going to talk about a brief overview of what is called in the United States the civil rights movement. Uh, I have a little bit of a problem with that name personally because I feel like it, maybe not to the people that it that were you know part of it or the people that supported it, but the people that don't support it kind of see it as this end-all, be-all. You had your movement; you're all good now. So I think the civil, I think that calling it the definitive civil rights movement is a little problematic. But that is what it is known as by the majority of people, and it happened starting in the 50s, kind of going through the 60s into a little bit of the 70s, but we're going to basically do that 15-year time span, starting with the Supreme Court case, um, Brown versus the Board of Education, and go all the way up until the death of Martin Luther King and subsequent events. So, to start off, I would like to talk a little bit about Brown versus the Board of Education. So the story of what would eventually become Brown v. Board starts more than 50 years before, where you have, you know, the end of the Civil War, 1865, is the first step towards equality. And yeah, ending slavery is a really, really, really minimal step. But unfortunately, how change works in this country is that it comes very gradually and nobody really wants to do anything radical too quickly. So... Uh, 30 years after that, uh, actually 31, you get Plessy versus Ferguson, which is another Supreme Court case, which at the time was a step forward for the community, which is really, really hard to fathom now because it's kind of, you know, you were taught in schools that the concept of separate but equal, which was held up by Plessy versus Ferguson for over 50 years, was a very, uh, you know, racist and very oppressive concept. And of course it was, it definitely was, but that's the, that's the, you know, the theme of this whole U S progression where at the time separate, but equal 
or, you know, what seemed to be equal, even though clearly it wasn't, was a huge step forward. So they get this thing where schools and other, you know, other public buildings, they, they all have each other. They all have, they're kind of split into groups where, you know, black people get their version and white people get their version. And this is okay to the Supreme Court. So they say that separate, separate but equal is okay. So this decision would be upheld for 58 years. And this started to get turned around in 1951. So in 1951, Linda Brown, who was a nine-year-old, uh, was unable to enroll in a school close to her house because she was black. And instead, she had to walk two miles to go to her segregated black school. And clearly, this was unfair. So her parents uh, created a lawsuit. And this lawsuit turned into, after being merged with a bunch of other lawsuits of similar argument, uh, what would become Brown versus Board of Education. So... <clears throat> She was in Kansas, and there were the other four cases were in different parts of the country. So this became a very uh, united front, as opposed to just being in Kansas. So this case goes to the Supreme Court, and there are kind of two phases of Brown v. Board's uh, existence in the Supreme Court. So you have the Fred Vinson era and the Earl Warren era. So Fred Vinson was the uh, Chief Justice before Warren, and he was opposed to. Linda Brown's case, and he felt that separate but equal was totally constitutional and that Plessy should be upheld. Now, he dies in 53, and I, I, Dwight D. Eisenhower appoints Earl Warren, who was at the time the governor of California, uh, as the new chief justice. And Earl Warren would be the chief justice until 1969, and that period of time is known as the Warren Court, and a lot of decisions based on civil rights and the constitutional rights that are guaranteed to everybody uh, are, a lot of those cases were heard. So Warren takes over, and not only does he change the course of this case to be a, a victory for Linda Brown, he makes it unanimous. He convinces the other eight judges that this should be a unanimous decision, and separate but equal is made, is declared unconstitutional in on May 17th, 1954, uh, with the uh, decision being read as a 9-0, separate but equal is unconstitutional. So, you know, again, you have this theme of a victory, but not winning the war. So a year later, you have the very tragic story of a boy named Emmett Till. So Emmett Till was a 14-year-old who looked at a white girl and was lynched for it. Uh, there, there's really not much to explain it other than the fact that he was lynched and the reasoning was because apparently he looked at a white girl. <laughs> the history of racism in this country is... You really can't sugarcoat it in any way other than the fact that it's stupidly bad. Um, and the other important thing in 1955 is Rosa Parks. So what happened with Rosa Parks was pretty much everybody knows the story. She got on the bus, she refused to sit in the back, and she was arrested. Now, this was picked up by the 
the civil rights community, and it ended up becoming what would become the Montgomery bus boycott. So this is kind of the start of the peaceful protest that you see in the next 10 years. And it's the start of, you know, taking away funding and taking away support as a way to protest and get social change. So the Montgomery bus boycott lasts for uh, a year throughout most of 1956 and ends in December. And then in 1957, we get the first kind of big result of Brown v. Board, and that is the integration of the Little Rock Nine. So I think the first takeaway before we actually talk about the Little Rock Nine from all of this is that it took three years for significant change to actually come from the Supreme Court case. And that's absurd. Like, I just I just want to talk about that. It took it went from uh, more than three years. It's from from 1954 in May to September in 1957 is the first time uh, that we see a big headline of people trying to integrate. And as I'm about to tell you, it didn't really go smoothly. So on September 2nd, uh, the night before they were going to be integrated, the Little Rock Nine, uh, nine black teens trying to enter Central High in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, the National Guard is mobilized by the governor of Arkansas to block the entrance for these students. And he said it was for the protection of the students, but when they got there the next day, they were not allowed in, in including by the National Guard. So for the next three weeks, they try and try and try to get in. And even after a federal judge blocks the National Guard from being there, they try to get in and they're blocked by a mob. And <clears throat> they are not allowed in until on September 25th, President Dwight D. Eisenhower had to federalize the National Guard and send in the army to help nine kids get into high school. And that's just, it's the thing that's really amazing about this whole thing and really terrifying is that most of these kids, these, they grew up now, are still alive. Like, we're not even a generation out from this. This people are still alive that had to, the, the federal government had to intervene with them entering a high school. So, uh, what came after that? Uh, in that year was the Civil Rights Act of 1957. And something I'm going to focus on uh, with this episode is while I'm going to talk about the events that happened, I'm also going to be talking about the legislature, because I think it's very important to talk about the changes to the laws that actually affect the policy. Because as much as protesting happens and, you know, and advocating happens, nothing really gets done without changes to the law. So, the first of four civil rights acts in the next 12 years, we see 1957, and that is the, it makes it illegal to suppress another's right to vote. So that is blocking polling sites. That is, you know, threatening people with don't vote or I'll do something horrible to you. Uh, and that's the first one. So now, again, because, you know, gradual process, we're going to skip forward to another three years to 1960. And in 1960, is the Greensboro sit-in. So the Greensboro sit-ins took place over a couple of months and they were started by four black college students in North Carolina that were trying to protest the segregation at the Woolworth department store. 
So what they did is they sat at a lunch counter and demanded to be served, even though they were black and it was designated for white people. So what's important about the Greensboro Siddons and a lot of the other protests of the era is that they were all peaceful. Uh, and that was one element where you have, you know, starting back with the bus boycott four years before and this, and then what would come later with a bunch of Martin Luther King's initiatives. They were peaceful, but they were also meant to gain attention. And that attention wasn't just local, it was widespread because of the media. And the media plays a huge part in this because the people that were taking part in the sit-ins, it started as four and then became many, knew what they were doing. They were intentionally, you know, obviously intentionally breaking this racist law because they knew it would anger the racists in the area, causing a scene. And when there's a scene, it gets filmed. And even in a time where the internet doesn't exist, television existed and national news corporations existed and their message got out rapidly. So... After the Greensboro sit-in, uh, you get a widespread movement known as the Freedom Rides. And the Freedom Rides are basically um, bus terminals were segregated throughout the South. And with Freedom Rides, uh, a bunch of people would get on a bus in the North and take it just going South. Uh, and this bus would include white and black protesters and this integration and unity would anger the people running the bus terminals and the people in the South that supported the segregation of the bus terminals. So by, you know, having these white people and these black people together, a lot of people in the South became angry. And these people and these protesters had to endure great deals of pain and attacks and violence against them just to prove their point. But with violence and attacks and riots and all of this comes national news coverage. And that's really what gets the message out. Unfortunately, when there is a, a big huff over something, people see it more. And you see that then you see that now it's the case when, you know, it's the human nature that when we see something that's, you know, more loud and aggressive, we're going to kind of be drawn towards it. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they had to be the ones instigating the violence. They just had to, you know, speak out what they believed in and these angry racists would do the work for them. So you get those for the next couple of years, you get this, this peaceful protest of just kind of waiting and you know, taking a beating for the cause. And it's horrible, but it, it made a point. And in 1963, you get a few more steps forward in this sluggish path to get change. And the first one I want to talk about is two men trying to integrate into the University of Alabama, two black men, uh, were stopped at the doors by Governor <clears throat> George Wallace. And George Wallace is pretty well known in the 60s for being the super racist Alabama governor that they'd sing about in Sweet Home Alabama. If you know the, the line in Sweet Home Alabama, in Birmingham, we love the governor. That's about him. Problematic song. But, um, 
he is a very old school Democrat, like Southern Democrat, racist. And uh, JFK, who was the president at the time for the next couple months, uh, was also a Democrat, but he was a very Northern Democrat. And I think it's very interesting to see here where his response to a member technically of his own party, uh, his response to this, this racism in Alabama, is to send in the National Guard and federalize it to get him to stop. And if you recall from earlier in the episode, that's exactly what Eisenhower did on the other side of the aisle, where it was a Republican trying to stop a Republican. And I think it's really interesting here to think about how race was racist issues were not as politicized back then as they are now. And it's important to realize that where people didn't just fall along party lines, they did what was right. And you had presidents that weren't afraid to speak out for what they believed in just because it was, you know, it wasn't part of the platform. Uh, it's a huge difference now where even if a Republican senator doesn't really believe in the racist doctrines that their peers are saying, they will most likely go along with it just because they want to get reelected and that's how people vote these days. That was a little different back then where you had people, you know, going against their own party members on the regular just because they didn't agree with them, which is, in my opinion, how politics should work. But, um... Later in 1963, you get the famous March on Washington, which was a huge 250,000 about people march uh, led by Martin Luther King Jr. And that is where he delivered the famous I Have a Dream speech. Um, <clears throat> this march was very similar to, you know, marches you see, uh, the Women's March uh, after Trump was elected. You see marches going through every protesting town right now and marches have always been just as you have the peaceful protest uh with the sit-ins uh marches are also a great way to get coverage because when there's a lot of people and it's a big event the news will be there to cover it and martin luther king knew that so you get this iconic moment with a very charismatic leader of the movement and he he sends his message to the entire country standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, the man who is the great emancipator. Uh, it's a powerful message because it's, you know, it works and it's in the time and the place that the message can be sent forward. And unfortunately, after that, you don't, you still don't immediately get change. There has to be more. One of the worst parts about the gradual nature of progression in this country is that while positive change is occurring, bad things don't just get put on hold. Uh, it's incredibly sad to talk about something that happened not even a month after the March on Washington, and that is the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. Now... <clears throat> Four young girls died in this bombing, and it, it literally happened on September 15th when the March on Washington happened on August 28th. So, yes, the I Have a Dream speech is probably the most iconic piece of 20th century 
civil rights like lore but even something as powerful as that didn't end the systemic racism yeah it was a step forward and there were a lot of steps forward but the bad things continue to happen until a full eradication of this poison that lives in our society so if we fast forward to 1964 we see another step with the civil rights act of 1964 passed by the new president lyndon b johnson after unfortunately john f kennedy was assassinated in november now the civil rights act of 1964 we've talked about 57 was uh voter suppression uh and then you have <clears throat> the second one, 64, is about workplace discrimination. So it makes it so that you cannot discriminate against someone that's, you know, a different race just because they're a different race. Uh, clearly, this still occurs today uh, all over the place. But this is, a, this is kind of the Plessy versus Ferguson uh, or even Brown versus Board of Education where you get, you know, you get it in words, you get it on paper, but in practice, more things have to happen before we actually see results. So then in 1965, we see probably the first big hit for the civil rights movement, and that is the death of Malcolm X. Now, Malcolm X is a prime example of all of the uh, infighting within the move, the civil rights movements uh, throughout that time. And whether it was his conflict directly with the Nation of Islam at the end of his life, or his opinions contradicting that of Dr. King, uh, he kind of just, he just kind of embodies different opinion. Uh, he supported a black community building its own structure and power in society while the other more dominant role the other more dominant position had been that of the little rock nine and sit-ins and uh freedom riders of the integration of you know we can get equality and he was all about what if we just have two societies and he also wasn't super for the, we're just going to take a beating and TV is going to show it and everyone's going to be like, oh, how horrible. He was very much for the self-defense side and we're going to fight back. Not, not aggressively, but if provoked, we are going to fight back. That was, that's the important thing. I think a lot of people, when they hear Malcolm X, they think violence. They think if Dr. King is, you know, the ultimate peace then Malcolm X is the ultimate violence. And that's not the case. Malcolm X was an advocate of self-defense. Uh, and that's what it was. Now, his death is very disputed. Um, and just as Dr. King's is, as I will talk about later. Uh, but basically, he got himself into a little bit of a dispute with Elijah Muhammad, who was the leader of the Nation of Islam, after he left. Uh, they had had differing opinions, and uh, he was very much, uh, he was killed by a man who harbored sentiments who agreed with the Nation of Islam. Now, the powers that be at the time very much leaned into this and said, that's all it was. It was 
the nation of Islam killing Malcolm X, you know, two rivals just going at it. That very well may have been what it was. I am not an expert in this, but the FBI also did have some shady dealings when it came to him. So no one will really ever know what exactly happened with his assassination, but the bottom line is he made a lot of enemies and he eventually was unfortunately taken out. One person that was certainly not involved in the death of Malcolm X at all was Dr. Martin Luther King. He, uh, and he and Malcolm X actually met only once and it was briefly, uh, but not even a month after the death of Malcolm X, you have Selma. Now, uh, Selma is a kind of continuation of the we're going to be peaceful to the end no matter the, no matter what the consequences are. And it's going to be on the national stage. So you have this march planned on March 7th. Uh, where they're going to march from Selma to Montgomery in Alabama. And they're trying to do this because even though, as we mentioned earlier, the Civil Rights Act of 1957 ensured that you could not suppress another's right to vote, this was very much not what was happening. Yes, people were not physically standing in the doorway anymore, but people were finding ways around it, specifically with literacy tests, and other forms of identification that they were making you have. And people were definitely finding loopholes to stop black people from voting a lot. So this march was to go from Selma to Montgomery to get that word out. And the first march, unfortunately, was stopped uh, on a bridge and it was known as Bloody Sunday, where very, very violent counter-protests. Uh, the protesters stood there and were attacked. Uh, <clears throat> they did not fight back, as this was not the philosophy of this group. And eventually, they secured their rights, a couple days later, eventually secured their right to march. And it took two more times to actually get to Montgomery, but they eventually did get to Montgomery after much much violence against them, but they got there. And the really, really interesting and cool part about the Selma marches is that it directly did have an effect where you have the Selma marches, and then in that same year, Lyndon Johnson passed his second Civil Rights Act, which is the Civil Rights Act of 1965, uh, where he made it illegal to have a literacy test at a polling place, and you could not use that way to suppress black votes. So that was a victory. Again, another small step, and we keep going. Now, the last stop on our journey in the timeline of the black civil rights movement is 1968. And 1968 saw the death, unfortunately, of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and the subsequent uprising that happened after that. So the uprising, known as the Holy Week Uprising, which because it occurred in April, is not reminiscent of other protests that King led. This was, it had more violence, it had more looting, and it actually kind of reminds me of what happened after the death of George Floyd. And I think it's it's interesting to, to look at this and look at this history as 
this is a man that is known as the the peaceful protester that you know caused so much change of peaceful protesting and he was cut down in action and so was malcolm x who was known as the you know i as i said earlier he is not the violent protester but is known as somebody that condemned simply peaceful protest and he was also cut down i think it's important that this is kind of a symbol that while you know protest alone works uh to get the slow steps that i said uh unfortunately there are still horrible people out there that are going to commit horrible crimes. And the only way to keep going is to keep fighting after these horrible setbacks occur. Now, what happened at the Holy Week uprising was they were rioting in over 200 cities and there was looting and there was property damage. But yet again, change occurred after this. There was not, you know another three years before another bill there was a there was another civil rights act in the johnson presidency in 1968 known as the civil rights act of 1968 where fair housing was amended and they it was known as the fair housing act also and this was the last act of the civil rights movement legally as after after this act uh you see the Nixon administration the ford administration and a lot more of the country's energy is focused internationally because of the war. And I think it's really interesting to look at context here, where you have the civil rights movement that I've been talking about going on for the last 15 years. But you also, at this time, have kind of this perfect storm where it uh, it kind of happened that because it was kind of the right place at the right time. You have... At this point, you have the Kennedys, who are this family that are taking kind of a lot, taking a lot of influence in Washington. You have a new generation of people that are this counterculture. Uh, and you have what I want to talk about for the last little in-depth thing. You have another civil rights movement. You have more than one civil rights movement. But you also have the Stonewall Uprising in 1969. And what happened at the Stonewall Inn in New York on June 28th was a, it was a gay bar that was raided by the police and the civil rights struggle that had been, you know, the black community's struggle for the last 15 years also became the gay community's struggle. And this lasted for multiple days and it pushed on and it pushed on and you start to see more gay rights and women's rights go into the 70s and you see people like harvey milk who again also unfortunately was assassinated but um civil rights in this generation of about 25 years you see a lot of issues getting put on the table and it's not just one issue and it's not just one perspective and it's a lot of that. And I, I think that this generation is kind of the reincarnation of that generation in the fact that you see people fighting for climate change. You see people fighting for African-American rights. You see people fighting for LGBT rights. You see people fighting for prison rights. You see, you know, every single cause has its 
its own activist group and many 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 people of my age and of people a little older or people a little younger are coming together to support all these causes because this generation actually does feel like it can do something and i think that in many ways we are kind of the spiritual successor to the generation of the 60s and 70s uh because Yes, we're getting that gradual change, but we're actually getting it. Uh, if you look at the Cold War and propaganda and stuff, once you hit 75 and the Vietnam War is over, a lot of it kind of stopped. We, we hit a recession, uh, and then the 80s was very conservative. You kind of go back to a very America first, uh, a very America first, very... You know, we're not going to talk about politics. It's no longer really part of the table discussion. And that kind of becomes the norm. And I think every, you know, every generation has a decision to make whether or not they want to be a generation that keeps it under the sweeps politics under the rug or be a generation that actually confronts the issues. And while I think the generation of our parents is not at fault for not confronting the issues. Uh, they're, you know, it's how the generation ended up working out. But I think every generation has that choice. And this generation, this new generation coming into their own is choosing to fight. And I think the important takeaway from looking at the civil rights movement is that if a group of people is choosing to fight, they have to be in it for the long run. Because if you just have the Montgomery bus boycott, yeah, you're going to have integrated buses in one city. Or if you just have the Little Rock Nine, that's nine kids able to go to high school. Or if you just have, you know, just the March on Washington, yeah, you've got a charismatic guy talking about idealistic futures. But you only have that. and But if you put all these things together, you get a pretty impressive resume for change. And I think that we can have that again. And I think that we can do that again. But the important part is that we don't stop once we start. I think the fire has been lit under everybody in the past few months, uh, specifically in the past month. But it will be interesting to see where this goes and how this generation can keep the fire burning. Now, before I say farewell for the week, I would like to just make a few announcements. Of course, my first announcement is citing my sources because this show would not be possible without specific information from specific sites. So I'd like to say I got my information this week from supremecourthistory.org, smithsonianmagazine.org, uh, blackpast.org, National Museum of African American History and Culture's website, uh, history.com and time.com. Uh, all of these websites are publicly available and um, you should check them out. So the last thing I'd like to say, uh, I'm sorry that it went a little long. Today's episode was a little rushed. We had a surprise in the schedule. Unfortunately, uh, I was going to have a guest here, uh, but she had a family matter and was unable to attend. But she will be here in the next few weeks. So I hope you guys look forward to that. And uh, hope you guys all have a great week because uh, we're going through a rough time still with coronavirus and quarantine and stuff, but things might be looking up and uh, I 
Thank you all for listening. Please have a great week. And I will see you guys next time. Thanks.